our study tonight is on Bible Believers Biblical Heritage, a study of church history, starting here at Heartland Baptist Fellowship. So, you know, this when you think of history, a lot of people are like, I'm just going to go to sleep right now. Uh, but in the Bible, it shouldn't be that way, because, uh, you know, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. And so it's so important to know uh, where it is in which you are coming from. On the cover of your notes, I've, I've put a passage, Psalm 145 and verse 4, and uh, I'm just going to turn there, and we're going to look at that as people are getting oriented and handing, getting their handouts. Are we short of a handout? If we are, we can get some more. Amy, are we short? So, All right, so Psalm 145, uh, let's... Get pick back up where we are, and if you don't have a copy of notes, you will soon. We're not gonna we're not gonna leave you behind very far. It says, "One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works." And you know what we have has been handed down to us. It goes on to say, uh, in verse uh, six, "And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts." And will de- and I will declare thy greatness. Then shall uh, abundant <coughs> shall abundantly utter, or they shall abundantly utter the memory of <coughs> of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. And so, I should have thrown verse eight in there. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. That's beautiful as well. So ultimately, what that what that psalm is saying is that you know what, from one generation to the next, God's work shall be praised. So. My heart in sharing church history is to uh, not just give you factoids, but to uh, really trace and see how God has worked through history, how the devil is countering that. And ultimately, at the end of the story, we have the book of Revelation. God wins. But you can see through history as it cycles through, God always wins. And that's important to know, especially when things look like they're going the wrong way. People can get discouraged. They can get disheartened. That's actually the best time in the world to be alive. Because that's when you get to see God uh, get the glory. And so, uh, so I gave you that handout. If you do have the handout, you will if you don't have it. I'm not going to take the time to read the foreword word for word. You can read that yourself. But uh, Doug Shear is, is the one who actually compiled the first rendition of this document. And, of course, Greg Axe is the one who is, is the master hi- history teacher in, in our circles. I don't know if you know Greg Axe. He wrote a book uh, recently. I think I actually put it in. And I don't have, I gave my notes away, but in your notes, I put a little bi- bibliography of various works. Oh, there it is, uh, that you can get. And um, Greg Axe is listed in there. Um, what's his book at the very bottom? Does anyone shout? Uh, Revelation Made Simple? That's not a church history book. That's not what's on there. Just church history. Okay, Greg Axe is, it's church history book. You can get that on Amazon or on uh, Kindle too, by the way. It's a great book, and it's expanded a little bit on what we have here. <clears throat> but uh, what I'm going to give you is not a, you know, it's not a, it's not the uh, HBI level uh, class. Um, we did that a little over a year ago, I think it was. So, so actually, Ray Blower should be able to come up and teach this course for me. Uh, so this is a HBI light, but it's a little bit like what you would get in HBI. Matthew 16:18 says, "I say unto thee." Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One, one of the things that's important about church history is understanding the owner. The owner is the Lord Jesus Christ. Even practically in this church, Jesus owns the church, right? And so um, it's not my church. It always makes me uncomfortable when people say, your church. 
It's, it's in the context of, yeah, this is my church because I'm, I'm a member, but I don't own the church. Jesus is the one who bought the church. He paid for it. I'm just, uh, I'm just here to help. <laughs> you know, I'm just here to help serve. And so, um, and so Jesus is the one who's building his church. And that is true from the first century uh, until the catching away of the church here shortly. And so it's important that we understand that. Now, the devil hates that. He, he hates it with a passion. Um, and so uh, we are all just a passing through, and we are all part of a bigger story. So Jesus has been building his church from the first century till now, and he's getting ready to catch us away, not because we're a great success, but ultimately it's a great, because we're great failures, right? If we did our job and we got everyone saved, well, we wouldn't need to be caught away, would we? We'd just move on into the millennium. But that's not going to happen uh, because uh, God's got more work to do with Israel. And, uh, and not all men will receive the gospel. So there's some things that he's going to do at the end of this age. And he's going to catch us away. Um, and uh, we will be caught up together in the air with him. And the church age will end. And why do I mention that? Well, because um, the, you know, the whole Bible is not about the church age. right? It's about the kingdom. It's about Jesus Christ establishing his kingdom. And, uh, and so uh, we have this, this role to play. If this was a, a play or a, a screen play, we have a role as the church from the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 2, uh, all the way to the catching away of the church. This is, this is the part we play. And God is in his providence, if you're born again, has brought us in uh, to be a part of that. So one of the things that's captivating for me about church history is understanding uh, was you look back on all the players, like all the actors and all the, all the openings and the closings. It's a really compelling story. We're going to get into that. Everything that God's been doing from the apostles uh, until now. And when you really get a hold of that, you start to see that, wow, I am part of church history, right? It, it's, uh, tomorrow, what happens tomorrow in the church is, is not on Charles Spurgeon, right? It's not on J. Vernon McGee. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's on us. It's on us. It's not on. It's on. It's not on Mark Trotter, right? It's not on Jim Boyette. Jim's already ran his race and finished his course. So it's on. So you are part of church history, right? And you only have a window of time to be part of this building process. And then once you get caught up, you know we get to we get to work out at the judgment seat of Christ. Was it wood, hay, and stubble, or was it gold, silver, and precious stone? Were we really contributing to what God was doing, or were we taken? Right? Were we givers or were we takers? And so there's a lot of reasons. You know, that's the question on the table. Why study church history? What in the world is this all about? Uh, well, for me personally, this is one of the most motivating things I've ever studied is just understanding that, wow, God's got a plan. The devil has a plan to counter it. I'm on the winning team now that I'm saved, and I want to I get the ball across the goal, man. I want to line up, and I want to I get the next play. You know, I want to go forward in faith and be full of faith. So Ephesians 2 um, is, a, is a passage there. I think it's in the foreword. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So you can see the imagery there. I mean, we're all part of the building, right? In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So, uh, by God's grace, what we'll get through, I'm not going to tarry on the introduction. I got 11 weeks. I told you 10, I'm sorry, 11 weeks 
is what I have planned. It'll be around that, you know, give or take a week or three. And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and so in that time, we're going to cover um, really the timing of Christianity, the seven churches of Revelation, and then we'll break those seven churches out. We'll look at the church of Smyrna. Uh, we'll look at Origen and Alexandria, which were uh, compatible for that first century church. Uh, you hear me mention these terms, too. This will help you if you're, if you're an HBF uh, junkie, whether you like, you know, you're following from afar. You're like, I'm not ready to drink the Kool-Aid there and be a member, but I'm going to keep watching these guys. Sorry to use a Jim Jones analogy. It's really not very wise in these times we live in, but whatever. So, uh, but the point is, you know, you're going to hear me mention Origen. You're going to, Sunday I mentioned, I mentioned, you know, Plato and Alexandria and Origen, I think, in one rambling sentence or paragraph, you know. So where, where am I coming from? Well, if going through this will help you understand a little bit more about some of those things that I, I kind of throw out there uh, every once in a while that people, if you've been around here much, you'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I went to, yeah, I know what they're talking about. But that stuff isn't common anymore. I mean, people just don't know that stuff. Um, I've been fortunate to have been uh, handed these things. And these are factoids of history. These are not just uh, random facts of history. You can, everything I'm going to teach you, you can go check it out yourself. And it's all going to be there for you. Um, we'll look at some definitions. We'll look at the Church of Pergamos and see we'll keep building on the foundation. Uh, we'll look at uh, uh, what God was doing there. And uh, the Church of Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. Uh, I take a little bit of time and talk about the English Bible. Philadelphian Church Age is when God really delivered the English Bible, uh, which then has brought the world to one language for, for the most part. You know, not 100%, but, but the, the language of the earth to this day is English. And we happen to have a perfect word in English. So we'll talk about that. Uh, the golden age of missions that, that has resulted from having that standard. And then, of course, uh, where we are with liturgically Odyssea. And literally, I will take this course, uh, if you stick with me to the end, all the way down to this church. I mean, where did we come from? I mean, in the last 100 years, in the last 50 years, in the last 25 years. You know, where, where did HBF come from? And most importantly, what are we reproducing? Uh, you know, what are we going to leave? If the Lord were to tarry another 100 years, what will be the residue of the ministry in this cow field, right? What will become of that? And uh, by God's grace, uh, a lot of glory, a lot of souls, and a lot of gold, silver, and precious stones. All right, so you've got the, you've got the dates and all that. I'm not going to I'm just going to pause and just say uh, this is not a, uh, you know, not everything on here. Like Philip Schaff's History of, Christ, of Christian Church, you do not want to read. That will put you to, if you, I guess if you have a sleeping problem, you can read that. Um, it, it is very, yeah, it, it's a snore for sure. Uh, but it is a resource. And so I put down resources that I've referenced. Uh, I haven't read every volume of Schaff's uh, uh, work, uh, but I did put that on there. Um, and, and, uh, and so there's a lot more you can study other than this. Those are just some things that will get you started in church history. So let's start off the course, so to speak. If this were a course, uh, we're getting started right now. So let's get into the introduction. So what is uh, church history? Uh, so, you know, I've kind of touched on why we're teaching the class. The main reason is that it's important for us to have an understanding of the course and events of church history. It's often been stated that if you don't know where you come from, you'll not know where you're, you're going to go, and that's certainly true. So, in other words, studying church history will give you an understanding of where uh, you and I have come from and also give us an understanding of where we are today. And in order to be an effective minister, we got to know where we are, right? And so if our desire is to be effective for Christ... Uh, then you got to know where you are and where you're going. And knowing these things can help us plan for the future. And so 
uh, if you're a wise person, you're going to plan, you know, I, I know, don't, don't worry about tomorrow, for that'll take thought, God will take thought for the things of itself, sufficient of the days evil thereof. However, uh, it is wise, that's why we have, if God didn't want us to think about eternity, he wouldn't give us a plan of salvation, right? So he wants us to be ready for what's coming, and he wants us to help others get there. So this class is not meant to be uh, an information dump. Actually, there's so much information. If I just did that to you, it would not be relevant. Um, so we have to sift through it and sort through it. Uh, we have to pick and choose. Some of these are not, we're not going to give you every character of church history in the time that we have. And, and I'm, I'm certain uh, we're leaving very, probably some of the most, uh, as even the Lord teaches us in Hebrews, right? There's people that we don't even know their names, but God knows who they are, that were beaten, that were sawn asunder, that were, uh, you know, all of those things. Uh, Hebrews chapter, I think it's uh, chapter 12. Uh, or 11. Hebrews 11 talks to those folks. So no, we're not going to hit every major player. Unfortunately, some of the most major players are not in history because they've been expunged. And, uh, and, and so a lot of times you get some of the most exciting ones for many, gen many generations, many, many years of my Christian life, many decades, I guess. I'm not that old spiritually. So for the first several years, I, 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 I was, man, I was pumped up on some guys that I didn't realize used to kill people to believe like I did, right? And so um, and so when you study church history, it's a fascinating thing. Who gets recorded are the ones that were uh, typically had the resources to be recorded, and the people that were being expunged, like Bible believers, <laughs> don't always, anything they wrote got destroyed, and uh, anything that they reproduced uh, oftentimes was confiscated and burnt. And so there are lots of people in church history uh, that we will meet in heaven, and probably some of the most un, uh, you know, unsung heroes uh, or they're going to they're going to receive their amens from or they're going to receive their well done now good and faithful servants from the Lord and we'll get to meet them in glory. So so just know what we're looking at is kind of like a rock skipping across, you know, the last couple thousand years of history. And we're going to get some cool highlights, but it's just telling some of the story. I, I think there's so much more than even what I'm just going to give you a little bit of skeleton. But man, when you when we get to glory. The whole, you know, all the sinews and all the flesh, and it's all going to get quickened and come to life, and then we'll be like, whoa, that is incredible. But I'm going to do what I can in the time we have to kind of bring some life to that. So this class is meant to challenge us and make us reflect on our place in history, as I've already mentioned, and hopefully give us a greater burden uh, for missions. Uh, after all, that's what the church, that's what church history is all about, is getting the gospel where it needs to go on time, stuff we say all the time. And uh, you get to see the cost of that. And uh, you guys get to see that anyway. I mean, you get, you're seeing it in real time with our friends in India, and you're seeing it with our friends in Oaxaca and all of our friends everywhere, you know, and, and some of them are paying a heavy price. Well, guess what? That, we know that that's not new. It's like not the, sky, the sky's not falling. That's the normal Christian life. It has been for the last 2,000 years. And so that's another thing that church history encourages us in is that if there's an exception in church history, it's us, people that live quiet and peaceably. <laughs> and get to spread the gospel without with relative ease well that is not the norm for church history and so it's good for us to study church history because if that ever changes well, we'll be ready right perhaps god's let us have good friends that are under persecution all the time so we can learn from them who knows and and so these are things that we need to be aware of as we study church history so the second thing here is is what is church history and so we've I spent enough time on why let's talk about what so history is simply the movement of god countered by the movement of Satan, and, and we, most of us credit um, 
Greg Axe for that quote, because I think that's where I've heard it first. Or maybe Bob Alexander, but we don't talk about him anymore. So uh, the history, history is simply the movement of, of God countered by the movement of Satan, and it applies to all history. Therefore, it applies to church history. So God has a plan, and the devil is constantly uh, countering what God is doing in order to, to disrupt the plan of God. Now, I'm going to go way back, right? Before church history, we have history. So let's go back to Genesis and I know this seems, maybe you're going to be like, this is really simple, Brian. But it's, it may be simple, but it's profound. I, d- I don't have my handheld mic. I'd have someone read this right now, but I don't have the handheld. Um, and so it goes quiet online. And also for time. But does anybody have it? Just read it. And, I'll, and if you're watching online, turn your Bible to Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And we're going to read it. So somebody just shout it out. You're going to have to go loud and proud because we don't have the mic. Thank you. Kim Marl, ladies and gentlemen. I take that from uh, James Horton. So, um, and so, uh, so God is, he's disrupting. So what's going on is the devil is disrupting God's plan. And when you read Genesis 1, 1 through 1, 3, you may not see that. But um, we are studying Gen- or First John right now. So we can see that it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven, singular, and the earth. Um, and then in verse 2 it says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now we know from our study of First John uh, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so darkness was introduced somewhere, uh, and we know, of course, uh, you know, people can talk about, there's a lot of theology that gets in, in between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 that scares fundamentalists because they're afraid of evolution. But we shouldn't be afraid. You just just do a Bible study, and you tell me, where else would you put the fall of Satan? It only makes sense there. I mean, honestly, it only makes sense there. And then everything that happens after that is God dealing with the fall of Satan, which is well documented in Isaiah uh, chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, and other passages. Jesus said, I saw, uh, you know, Satan falls as a star from heaven, or as lightning, I'm sorry, not as a star, uh, as lightning from heaven. And so we understand that Satan fell. We also understand the future implications of that in the coming tribulation, uh, which is also very literal in its application in Revelation uh, chapter 13, Revelation chapter 9. Okay, so my point, is, and I don't want to, I could go off on a whole Bible study here, but we're not going to. So my point is, is this, is that there's been a war in heaven, uh, and, there's, and it's against God. And Satan has exalted his throne, and he wanted to be like the Most High, and, uh, and because of that, it's affected the earth. Well, after God recreates, in essence, after he resets the universe, starting with the universe, the firmament, then he resets the planet, then, of course, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars. That, that light doesn't come till the fourth day. His light comes the first day, right? The spiritual light gets turned on. And then uh, the creation process begins, and uh, uh, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning for six days, and he recreates um, and, and so, uh, and that's why he says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. And so, um, that is the mission and that draws Satan in, right? So you get to Genesis three, because now you have, you have this being as if we go back to the book of Luke, we find that Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus Christ is in the, is, is called the son of God. Adam is called the son of God. So what in the world? Well, Adam was 
before he fell was he was going to be a, a light-bearing, reproducing son of God, right? And, of course, he fell, and that messed up. And, and so we get to Genesis chapter 5, and we see that, that Seth is now created in Adam's likeness, in his image, which is that of a fallen sinner. It's D1 stuff, right? Well, what has that got to do with church history? It has a lot to do with church history because um, <clears throat> the devil is constantly countering God. But you also see, right off the bat, the Spirit of God was moving upon the face of the waters. God isn't static, right? Uh, his Spirit is moving. It's like the wind, right? And it moves about. And God is right, right on top of things immediately creating and, uh, and bringing light and life. And so, and so God is the author of all, and you got that up on the screen, he's the author of all history, uh, not just church history. And so you, we see in Romans 11, 36, uh, that uh, he is the one, the word, the word history can be broken down into, you know, the two words, his story. And that's what history is about, the, dealing with, the dealings of God with man and the devil getting in the middle to mess it up. So you see this pattern from the beginning to the end, and it works that way in all the dispensations, and the period of church history is no different. So God initiates everything. In Romans chapter 11, and uh, let's look at that in verse 36. Someone want to grab that passage and shout it out? Or not. If I get there first, I'll shout it out. It's like a sword drill. I'm pretty slow, though. Okay, I'm there. Sorry. Phone once, phone twice. All right, I'm there. All right, Romans 11, 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So you're not going to get around him, that's for sure. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So God has established an absolute course of history. Nothing that, now, that doesn't mean it doesn't meander here and there, but God's going to get the right answer no matter what the input is. So nothing that we can do will, will ever change the absolute course of history. We can have an impact on our small corner of it, uh, but it will never change the direction that God has planned. Right. So God has incorporated us into it. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, since, since uh, history documents for us the move of God and the counter move of Satan to disrupt the plan, and the will of God, we can see through the proper view of history where we, <clears throat> where we want our name to be written in the storyline of history. So Isaiah chapter uh, 46 uh, gives us another uh, you know, passage to meditate on. If anyone gets there before me, go ahead and read Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Amen, amen. So sometimes folks like me that believe that uh, God gives man a free will, which he does, uh, get knocked for saying, well, you don't believe God is sovereign. Don't put me in that camp. God is sovereign. You just read it. God will, what, so, what, God is so sovereign. I believe my sovereignty is more than your sovereignty. I believe God is so sovereign that he will allow your free will and still get the right answer. And how he does that is, well, that's a God thing, right? So you can choose what you want, and he's still going to come out with the right. At the end of the day, you can put whatever variable you want, <laughs> he's still going to come out with the right answer because that's God. And in that, he gives you the opportunity to love. Without that, there's no love. You've got to have a choice. And so he declares the thing. One of the things about God is, is the attributes that, that uh, Sharon just read about. If you're joining us online, 
you didn't hear her read that, but he says, remember the former things of old. So there is a charge to remember what's gone on behind us, right? For I am God and there is none else, right? First Corinthians 10, we are to remember what Israel went through because it informs us, right, today. So we don't make the same mistakes. He says, I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. And so all the way in the beginning, you know, um, I put up somewhere, was that on a slide maybe last Sunday? I did a Babe Ruth image. And, um, you know, I don't know if the people picked up on it, but the reason I did that is because Babe Ruth, he famously supposedly pointed to this spot, you know, and then he hits the home run there. That's the whole deal. So it's like a big deal. It's like he's a prophet, man. He knocked the ball where he said he was going to. Well, God, he did that in Genesis, right? He tells Satan right off the bat in Genesis 3, hey, this is what's going to happen to you, pal. This is how history is going to play out. Now, it's going to take it, you know, uh, 7,000 years before we get there to, to fulfill this completely. But it's that he's already called it out. Uh, history is, in, God's got it. It is his story. And he has written each and every one of us into it. And he can declare the end from the beginning. When we study Revelation, one of the things that's attributed to Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 is the fact that Jesus Christ he has the spirit of prophecy. You see, it's Revelation chapter 1, I think, in verse 6, it mentions it. And then when you get to Revelation 19, it mentions it as well. What does that really mean? Uh, well, Jesus Christ is a prophet. He says something that will happen, and then it happens. He is perfect in his prophecy. Uh, that's why there's a, pro- there's a prohibition in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 18. If you're a prophet and, you don't, and your words don't line up, you're to be executed. Right? God is never going to be executed because his words come to pass. He declares the thing at the end and from the beginning. Right? His story is going to work its way out the way he intends it to work out. And so, um, and so my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Uh, and so God is in, he's large and he's in charge. And so that's a good thing to consider uh, when you're going through the dark ages of church history. And you're like, man, where's God in this? Don't, don't worry, God's there. When you're going through dark days in your life, and you're like, man, God, where did you, where'd you go, God? God's there. You're still part of his story. Um, and you're not the only one to go through dark times. But remember, at the end of this story, who wins, right? And so um, it's always darkest before the, the dawn. And so church history can encourage you if you look at it through the right lens. So, uh, for instance, even though Hitler hated God's people, right, uh, he, still, he still is written into history. As one, as, as one of the greatest tools ever used by God to move the children of Israel to the promised land. And uh, unfortunately for Adolf Hitler, he was on the wrong side of history. So you got to make a decision. Which side do you want to be on? I remember, I was in a, this is totally off the subject. I was in a leadership meeting one time, and uh, they were trying to use, you know, this was business, had nothing to do with the Bible, and they were using all these, you know, uh, people in business that were leaders and effective and politicians and you know everybody was contributing and this one man i won't say his name because i don't want to embarrass him in the event that he would ever hear this but he's like well by these standards and he was absolutely right actually he was absolutely right uh he raises his hand he says by the standards that you're presenting adolf hitler was a great leader (coughs) and everybody was like boo hiss hiss you know how could you say that I actually appreciated it because inadvertently, and I don't think the guy was a Christian, he was pointing something out, which was you, you can't have leadership that's void of morality, can you? 
that was a huge moment in our little leadership training, and it was, and I brought it up again later, but um, because a lot of what's taught in regard to leadership, if you're in the business world, it's, it's agnostic. There's, it doesn't have God in the picture, but in reality, you can have all the leadership principles in the world. If you don't apply them underneath God's authority, guess what you become? Antichrist. Right? You can be the best leader in the world, but if you're leading them the wrong way, you're working on the wrong team. So there are some things that are pretty important, which is whose side are you on, right? Whose son are you? Whose child are you? Well, I'll tell you what, when you study church history, if you don't think there's a battle between good and evil, you haven't looked at history. You don't know. And, uh, and so a lot of these things will get sorted out. So how to understand church history. Let's talk, we, we looked at why we teach uh, church history. We talked about um, um, what is church history. And, and then I, I think I've missed something there, that God has established an absolute course. Okay, you guys got that? I don't have that in my notes, but you guys got it. So the third thing here is, is how to understand church history. So let's look, look at that for just a moment. <clears throat> Before I get there, any questions thus far? This is just introductory stuff. So in order to understand church history, you must have a basic understanding of salvation. Um, and so if the basic plan of salvation is not understood, the whole concept of church history uh, cannot be understood and the movement of God in history or church history cannot be properly understood and so uh, so you've got to understand salvation uh, there there also must be a proper understanding and belief of the scripture right because really even from the very opening pages of Genesis it's a it's a story of redemption initially God's redeeming the, the creation from a fallen cherub and then before we get out of the third chapter, now he's on a plan to redeem man from the assault of that same fallen cherub. And then it is all about a story of redemption and salvation. So I'm getting back to that point of salvation. So there, there must be a proper understanding and belief of the scripture, right? Uh, because if one does not believe the Bible, then all church history becomes a collection of facts without understanding the truth that is behind the facts. Now, these are important principles that I'm laying out. I just let me kind of highlight this. I know it's introductory, but really, if we don't get this down, we're not really going to grasp where we're going. And because if the Bible's not our guide, man, I, well, number one, you're not going to, there is so much information about church history, you're never going to understand it. You're never going to be able to sort through it. So have you ever sifted something, you know, you get the sand and you sift it out, and then whatever's left is, you know, what you get? Well, you kind of got to do that. There's so much information that it's the Word of God that helps us sift through all the, all the facts of history and arrive at the conclusions that God wants us to have. And so the scripture does that for us. And I'm going to show you that when we get to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so uh, the next thing we need to look at is know that Satan is the God of this world. He's the God of this world. So we, we're, are we doing this in pro presenter? That's why those are, are static like that. Okay, so, uh, so Satan is the God of this world. He can, he can and does confuse the issues so that the truth becomes harder to find. So without a proper understanding of Satan, the truth becomes lost in the mass of information, right? So you guys know Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. Uh, you know, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Um, uh, and I forgot the rest from there. Somebody help me. Ron, do you have that? I'm going to read it. I wasn't going to go there, but I'm going to. Ephesians 2, verse, uh, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, uh, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. 
among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath as others. And so, um, you know, Satan, uh, ha he had us. If you're not saved tonight, he has you. You're walking with him. But God wants us to walk with him, right? Uh, and so we don't want to lose the truth that God has for us in the mass of information. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. <clears throat> the Bible says here, um, oops, I'm in the wrong spot. If somebody has that, you can go ahead and read it. There's a lot in that uh, that Chris just read. So if you don't think that the, the God of this world, which is ultimately Satan and, and his, uh, his devils, has a plan for your life, you're kidding yourself. Um, there's a plan, not just for history. There's a plan for your life. Saved or lost, the devil has a plan for you to be destroyed, and God has a plan for you to be redeemed. And it's very clear here, but, but if our gospel be hid, by the way, that means it, it can be. There's a, there's a decision somewhere if it's hid or not. Uh, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. What, what does that imply, church? That we can goof around all day long and kid ourselves, but at the end of the day, what we do is to impact the lost. We could probably be pretty satisfied knowing we're saved, our four no more, but at the end of the day, if what we're about is not impacting the lost world, what are we doing? If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them they're lost I don't, I don't need to <clears throat> you know and if you're born again tonight and you're in this room well guess what we're, we're talking about church history uh, your greatest need isn't to, to, to really to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because that's already been met right but it's important that we don't allow that gospel to be hid from them that are lost and so we see that, that what we're studying here is, is in part what the devil is wanting to do in history because he's blinded the minds of them which believe not lest right the light of the glorious gospel of christ who is the image of god one another passage says he's the, jesus christ is the express image of god he is the, what does god look like jesus jesus christ is god you can't get away from it just like sunday i was mentioning in first john god works it out Right? You want to study the advocate, you're going to find that he's the comforter. You want to study the comforter, you're going to find that he's Jesus Christ. All these three are, are they're one. So, so it's interesting here. Jesus Christ is being hid, the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God, and he is being hid. How do we reveal Jesus Christ to people? Through the gospel, through his finished work on the cross, through what he did for us. We we magnify who Jesus Christ is. We, we illuminate people to what? Why Jesus came to this world. That Jesus Christ, that God was made manifest in this world. This is what it looked like, right? He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. I mean, he, is, he has been made manifest. And we declare that when we declare the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to this world. He died on the cross. He rose again the third day according to the scripture. And there is a battle for us not to show who Jesus Christ is. And there's a spiritual battle going on. 
right now in every one of our lives and every church that believes the Bible and uses the scriptures our absolute guide. There's a battle and there has been for the last 2,000 years. That's why it's important to study church history because we're not the first ones to, to get into this rodeo. And so um, Job 41, uh, 12 through 13. Um, <clears throat> let's go back and look at that briefly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, this is cool because this is what God says here. He says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Now, I know there's a few people, maybe someone watching this says, Leviathan is who we're talking about here. Leviathan is, okay, listen, Leviathan, if you don't know, I mean, I shouldn't say if you don't know, but if you don't, if you don't believe that God uses types, then Paul's in trouble. Because uh, 1 Corinthians 10 is all about the types. Yeah, and by the way, so is Jesus, because he is the Passover lamb. <laughs> I mean, all of the, the Bible is full of types. So Leviathan is a type of, of uh, Satan, just so you know. It says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. So who, well, who, who reveals him? God does. Who can discover the face of his garment, or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible. Uh, roundabout his scales are his pride shut up together as with a close seal now some say well see brian they're talking about a dinosaur well, well they might be talking about a dinosaur historically but this the type is really the doctrinal aspect is about type yeah ron isaiah 27 is the proof scripture for what Oh, the crooked serpent. Well, thank you. So get that reference down. Isaiah 27, 1. Yeah. Isaiah 27, 1. King James and the gang didn't give me that reference that I see. So interesting. Okay, so very good. So God will not conceal uh, to those that are looking for truth. Now, by the way, I don't want us to get drunk on studying Satan because there's wisdom in being wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning evil. But it's still good to know your enemy and respect him, right? Because he, we're, we're to understand his devices. Um, and so the devil counterfeits everything that God does. The more valuable, the more, the more uh, counterfeits, the more the counterfeits abound. So we need to have a proper view also, of the premillennial, uh oh, I lost my stuff. Where are we at? I don't know. There we go. Um, okay, so the devil counterfeits everything that God does, and uh, and so the more valuable, the the more <clears throat> the more valuable, the the more counterfeits abound. Uh, right, so the more something is is uh, of the value, the more the devil will emulate it. And what happens when that happens is it's like when you print too much money. What happens to the currency? You know what happens? It goes down, doesn't it? The value goes down. What's he trying to do? He's trying to make that that which is precious less valuable. And of course, uh, that's not going to work. But that's that's the way he goes. Uh, so have a proper view of the premillennial second coming. That's another thing. Uh, that we need to make to keep in mind um, and I've already mentioned that in my introductory comments so that is the teaching that Jesus returns before the millennium to establish his kingdom there's also a teaching of all millennialism which is the teaching that Jesus is not coming back 
and uh, it is up to us to build the kingdom. And the third teaching is post-millennialism, which is the idea that Jesus will not come back until after the millennium, and it's up to us to build the kingdom, and after everything is perfect, Jesus will come back. So both of those other two are wrong. Um, uh, and so both of these other ideas lead to the kingdom uh, building by force, which is also a, something you'll see in church history. People who get this messed up, usually they rob the promises to Israel, uh, and then they take upon the, the church governance becomes a, uh, a polity that ends up ruling over people, and you lose the gospel in that. And so we're fortunate to live in a country where we've had, in, a good, in the best sense of the word, separation of church and state. America was an example of that. Not that we're uh, uh, in a situation where we don't believe in God, but that the reality for freedom, there's a freedom of worship that doesn't include Brian Hedges having to be the magistrate and deal with all the criminal elements of Cass County. There's a whole separate system to deal with that. And so we're free to preach the gospel because true reformation happens at life issues. It doesn't happen. Reformation doesn't happen in incarceration, right? It happens when people come to life issues on Friday night and they get saved. That's where the true transformation happens. Um, the, the incarceration, it may teach someone a lesson. Uh, the lesson is you're so out of control that we got to put you in a cage like an animal. And hopefully it will break your spirit. Uh, but what God needs is your heart to be broke so that you can you'll be t tender enough to receive the gospel, right? And so uh, why am I getting into those details? That's practically, we're, we're living in a world where we see the benefits of, of, of understanding dispensationally what's going on. And that, uh, that we don't take on the promises of the nation of Israel. Of course, prophecy has borne that out now. God's established Israel as a nation again. And so it's going to play out just like the Bible says. But the reality of that, it gets back to this issue of the second coming. What is God doing in history? Well, right now, he's calling all men everywhere to be saved. By, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we preach grace alone and Christ alone and his finished work alone. right? And the day's coming when we're going to be taken out of here. And guess what? The, the means of salvation is Matthew 24, 13. Endure to the end and be saved. And, and having that security that you have the Holy Spirit, don't bet on it, buddy, because you're back to the Old Testament uh, economy, right? So we live in a church. The church history is, is unique in how we interface with the kingdom. And understanding where things are going is important. And, this is a, and we have a premillennial uh, view of the second coming of Christ. And so both of those other ideas lead to a kingdom that's built by force, and uh, that's one of the th areas of major contention between the believing and unbelieving people. And so uh, the next thing that we see is, is uh, let's see, where are we at? Um, yeah, so I need to go to the next slide. All right, so um, know that God has set about to uh, preserve his words and that Satan tries to destroy those words by counterfeiting them. All right, so we got to know that, uh, man, Satan wants to destroy uh, the words of God and uh, by counterfeiting them. The devil's most effective attack is to set up dual authorities. So a lot of times when you look at church history, uh, what you're going to see, uh, first of all, is attack on the word of God, starting in Genesis 3. Yea, hath God said. Right? It, it goes through the Old Testament, comes on into the New Testament. Um, you know, you can see that very clearly. Uh, in the in the New Testament, so the Word of God being under attack, nothing new. You live in an age right now where it's very clear to see the Word of God's under attack uh, by multiple. Again, trying to diminish the one by populating it with a lot of other perversions, and so bringing the value down. Um, and so you get that the counterfeiting. Uh, but the devil's most effective attack is to set up dual authorities. Remember in in Job chapter forty one, 
it mentions his, du- his double bridle, his double bridle. The devil loves to set up dual authorities um, and, uh, and divide, right? Conquer, divide and conquer, so to speak. And so uh, when there are two authorities, human opinion is the, deciding effect, is the deciding factor, which becomes the final authority, right? So he likes to set up dual authorities so that God's authority can be usurped. Um, and I got a couple of references here. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Colossians 2 and verse 8. Someone want to read that? <clears throat> this is directly related to the church at Laodicea, by the way. I'll read it. You can, oh, I'll wait. You got it? Well, I'll read it. Anybody else got it? <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. So, Paul, there's several warnings here in, in this chapter in Colossians 2. But Paul here is warning, this is one of them, very clearly, beware lest any man... So Satan does use men, uh, spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. I've been thinking about this subject, actually, how in, in the church, you'll hear me say it all the time, our discipleship philosophy. You know, why do we even use that word, philosophy? It's rooted in philo, right? The Greek uh, philosopher, that's where philosophy comes from. Um, and so... <coughs> Uh, he says you got to be careful because uh, philosophy and vain deceit, there's people that are going to try to, to uh, mislead you through philosophies and vain deceits. Um, i got to think of a better word than philosophy. I've been thinking about that. What would I use in place of philosophy? Anybody got an idea? I need to think about that. A biblical word? Ron, you can get back with me on that. But anyway, um, but there's a reason. Philosophy uh, is rooted in, um, you know, really paganism. When you think about uh, a lot of, even theologically, there's a lot of theology that's taught today that's rooted in Greek philosophy that's been brought forward into, um, into supposed Christianity. And so there's a lot of things that the devil does that will, he will use to draw people uh, away from God's authority and allow human opinion. And this isn't just in, you know, this isn't just in your favorite theologian, all right? So let me just, you know, get a little more contemporary than the 1500s or even the 1800s, there's been people, literally, I've, there was on two, two or three occasions, probably three occasions, at least two that I can think of, when someone has had a problem with some doctrine. One, one uh, was a, someone had an issue here with, um, you know, the fact that, that they said they were always a Christian. They were going through discipleship, and they said, hey, I've always been a Christian, and the, the ladies discipled them. Well, it was a lady, and then a couple ladies talked to her and said, well, hon, you just got to understand, biblically, um, you know, the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you may have had a great mom, and you may have been raised in a Christian home, but, you know, we all must be born again. You know, Jesus said that <laughs> to a very religious man. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it, you need to come to a place where you understand that your sin has separated you from God. Now that you're an adult, you need to eat, call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. He loves you. He puts you in a good home. You just need to believe the Bible, what it says over your experience. And praise God for your mom, not, no, nothing against your mom. And so it, it, that didn't work. 
And so then they, they brought the, the poor lady to me, and, and I visited with her and went through the same thing. Uh, they, I didn't add anything. They did a good job of laying it all out, just as the Bible would say. And, and so guess what? So one day during church, she brings me, she, and she stayed in our church for a long time, but I couldn't let her become a member because she wasn't saved that I know of. She had no salvation testimony other than I was born a Christian. Okay. Uh, Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> so, you know, uh, anyway. And so she gives me John Piper's, you know, whatever, his testimony of being brought up as a child and not knowing the day he got saved, which is a little different even than her testimony. I, I can understand not knowing the day and the hour you get saved, right? But you have to be trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and his, you have to trust the gospel, what the Bible says about your sin, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection if you want to be saved. There's no other name under heaven. Grandma's name ain't going to cut it. Mama's name ain't going to cut it. Brian's name ain't going to cut it. You've got to trust Jesus Christ and what the Word of God says about what he did. And so uh, that is an example where there's another authority. And it wasn't my word against John Piper's word. It's the Word of God versus what anyone says, right? It doesn't matter how big the preacher is. Um, and another time, uh, someone brought me... Uh, uh, it was a free will issue, and the, so they come to here and they shoved me a, a paper this thick on from John MacArthur, you know, on something uh, that he wrote about it. Which, by the way, I went through and I showed him. Something, but anyway, it didn't matter. The point is, at the end of the day, I'm like, don't give me John MacArthur. Give me the Bible. What does the Bible say? Who's John MacArthur? You know, I mean, no offense, John MacArthur's a, a preacher and he's a good guy and all, but. At the end of the day, we're talking about what does yeah, that say it the Lord God. We don't need dual authorities. It's not the most popular preacher in town. If God, let God be true and every man a liar, right? If I get a, if I and I get things wrong, guess what? When I get it wrong, what do I do? I submit to the Word of God. The Word of God's right, and we're all wrong. That's why I look at it. God's right, and we're all wrong. The Word of God preempts everybody else's opinion, and so that's got to be our standard. And so. Um, and, and that's not to say I'm always right about it. That's not my point. My point is to get our eyes off of what men are saying, get it back on the Word of God. The devil uses dual authority. And what happens is when, when we don't like the Word of God, which one are we going to choose? The human authority over the divine authority because we get an easy out. And, uh, and so that's why we got to say at the end of the day, it's what God, there's things that God says that it's hard to swallow. You know what? That's what we're going to go with is what the Word of God says because God's true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Okay, the fo and so when you're studying church history, that's important. Now, 1 Timothy 6.20, uh, we'll go over there and, and uh, bust this out. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, verse 20. <clears throat> the Bible says here, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of, notice this, science falsely so-called. Interesting how science, this is very relevant to where we live today. Uh, but uh, a lot of things, um, there's, there, hey, a lot, the Bible's way ahead of science in so many aspects. And so, um, and so, you know, go with the Word of God. And, and by the way, don't make the Bible say what it doesn't. You know, also, science falsely, there, science isn't bad. Paul doesn't say throw out science. He says science falsely so-called. If you want to go through the scientific process, right, and you have a hypothesis, and then, a, and then you and you ch and you challenge it, and you come up with proof and evidential facts based in reality and truth, and you come up with a with that that thesis that gets proved out. Well, guess what? 
Now you got, you got a, I forgot all the five points, but it's, I'm going, anybody got them off the top of your head? But you know what I'm talking about. And you come up on, on abject, I talked about it a few weeks ago, empirical evidence, right? Empirical evidence. It is what it is. Well, that's science, right? It's not, it's not what you want it to be. It is what it is. At least on the planet Earth, what goes up must come down. Then you come up with the law. That's the last one, right? Then it goes into the law once it's been proved out with empirical evidence. All right, so that's what Paul's saying. Hey, I don't have a problem with that. As a matter of fact, it's the Philadelphian church age and people who began to think like that that allowed science to take off. And uh, what did we do with science? Well, we make weapons to kill each other. That's what we do with science. Uh, because, again, just having the right knowledge on how to do things is not enough. You've got to have the right God. And so uh, you can't have leadership that's amoral. It's not, there's no such thing. Uh, and the world's fixing to learn that, uh, what I'm saying, on steroids. And so, uh, anyway, another story, another day, another message. But focus on, uh, <clears throat> am I still with you guys here? Have I, okay, last point there. So focus, i got to keep moving. Focus must be on the activity of the local New Testament church. So the devil has these dual authorities he'll set up, uh, but we have the authority of God's word, God's spirit, and the local New Testament church. So, um, so, so focus must be on the activity of the local New Testament churches more than on the activity of Christendom. Because Christendom is a way of saying the Christian kingdom, which is often uh, messed up. Um, and, and not biblical. And so we got to make, we got to understand when you study church history, most of the time, I got like textbooks in my office from colleges, you know, on church history. I forget the one. It's a, it may even be in the bibliography. I probably didn't put it in there. But anyway, um, when you read those church history books, it doesn't really distinguish the local church from Christendom. Same thing with Schaff. You read Schaff, you know, what is he talking about? Is he talking about Rome? Is he talking about Waldensians? Is he talking about Albigensians? They're not really focusing on those that hold fast to the faithful word as they've been taught, those that are faithful to the word of God. It's just anyone that calls themselves a Christian. They may be using indulgences. They may, be, they may not have a, not even be saved, but yet they're the, the church because they've been put in position of authority to operate in some parameter because they've taken the promises of Israel. So all of those things are important to discern as we go through church history i'll try to help you navigate through some of those things uh it's not always easy because the people who write church history are often lost and so it's everything thrown into one big old pile and we need to look at the the, the local uh, splinter groups especially those that christian christendom is against and that's really confusing you said what yeah well a lot of times the people who write about our church history uh, the people that we would identify with are the enemies they're the heretics. They're getting burned at the stake. They're getting executed. And they're going to be ta talking about dimly. Uh, those are oftentimes the people that, well, they were Bible believers. That's why I've titled this Bible Believers Church History. Because not everybody in Christendom was a Bible believer. Right? And so it's the history of Bible Believers Church History. And we'll get into that as well. That's why the title of this series, again, is Bible Believers Biblical Heritage. Uh, because from the beginning, Satan has been redefining terms God uses to set souls free. Even in the beginning of the church, those who would follow Christ in sincerity and truth were troubled and marginalized, even as we see all around the world today and even in our own nation. So while corrupt theology birthed the institutions with the name of Christ attached to corrupt the culture, uh, the Spirit of God is still working in faithful men, women, and churches 
as he has since the first day. So this study is designed to focus on those who were Bible believers. Even if they didn't have access to the entire canon of Scripture, they believed what they did have, and God used them in a mighty way. So we could spend hours uh, quoting the works by Schaff and Eusebius, but ultimately uh, the best source uh, for learning uh, what God wants from history is the Bible itself. So when we can look back and see who lines up with the Scripture and who does not. Uh, even Schaff, who is... Uh, careful not to give too much credit to the supposed church fathers, in air quotes, muddies the water a bit by acting as though the scholasticism of the first centuries was evident uh, or equivalent to the power of God's spirit in the multitude of believers who held tightly to the doctrine of the apostles and were slaughtered by the millions throughout the centuries. So to Schaff's credit, he saw clearly in the 1800s what was coming in the 20th and 21st century. And so I'm going to cut that off and I'm going to keep moving. But what, what we must not miss is that there is an unbroken line of true Bible-believing Christianity um, <clears throat> from the book of Acts to the present day. There has never been a time uh, when God's people uh, and, the, and the truth was lost, right? So your Mormon friends are wrong. That's one of my biggest, I, years ago when I was a teenager, uh, I was involved with some Mormons up in Independence working for them, and they would come in and try to evangelize me, and and uh, one the one the young guy couldn't answer. Then I went to the next guy and up the food chain, and uh, he comes in. What was that little dude's name? I forget. Nate. Yeah, Nathan comes in, and and he could never answer that question. I'm like, because the whole thing with Mormon theology is that well, um, you know, there was they lost the gospel, man. They lost the 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 testament. They, you know, we had to have a new revelation in this continent. Blah blah blah. I'm like, what about what about the what about the one in the first century? What about what about the one that they do have? What about the one that I've inherited from Europe? Is this no longer valid? Well, yeah, well, they won't say that that it is valid, that it's invalid. They'll just say, well, we got a new gospel, a new testament is what they call it, another testament, not a new testament, another testament. Well, let me ask you: if all my promises that I need are found in this testament, why do I need another testament? And they can never answer that. But uh, it's an interesting thing because they do teach um, <clears throat> that, uh, that uh, you know, over time, truth was lost. No, what's been lost is people. The truth is right where it's always been. It's in the word of God. You know, God had, we haven't lost the truth. He's not asleep. The unbroken line will not be found in doctrines and creeds and signs or denominations. God forbid even Baptist denominations. Uh, uh, or offices, it's going to be found in relation to the local churches and the individuals who hold fast to the faithful word as they've been taught. And uh, there's no apostolic succession. Peter did not pass authority to anybody in regard to the church in Rome. That's, that's ridiculous. And so every period of church history and every moment within the church history follows a cycle. It's very important as well. And so I think I've left you behind, haven't I? Yeah. So every, there's a cycle, and every movement within church history follows that cycle. So typically we see a biblical truth preached by a man, and the man is, is marked as a leader. In time, it turns into a movement, and eventually the movement becomes mechanized, and the organic nature is replaced by uh, ministry, machinery, until the church or the movement turns into a machine. So every, eventually the machine goes on until it becomes a monument. So it starts as a, as a movement. And then there's a man that's identified with it, and then it becomes um, mechanized, and it goes from organic to mechanical, and then it becomes a machine, and then it becomes a monument. So that's the process you see over and over and over again, and it will happen 
if this church thrives and it goes on and the Lord would tarry, it'd happen here if, if allowed. And so uh, you just got, that's just something that happens in history. The vast majority of historical uh, publications in any age are against God. I think I just need to go there. So are you guys caught up? There we go. So the vast majority of historical publications in any age are against God, against Israel, and against Bible Christianity, even when uh, purported uh, to be from a biblical perspective. So in your notes, I gave you a list of quotations that I've taken from two of the books that show uh, these beliefs. Uh, the best known of these is the, the Canachaical Book of Daniel, composed in the setting of his struggle against Antiochus uh, the uh, Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. And so I'm not going to read all this. I, you guys can read it. But I, I bring that up because <clears throat> this is found in a history of, of the Christian Church, fourth edition. And I copied it out and put it in here because what it in essence is saying, I'll just kind of give you the, the, the cliff notes, is that, uh, you know, the book of Daniel was written uh, from a perspective that, that, that Daniel was, was uh, which, by the way, has been, mis has been blown up by the, the uh, it, it was composed uh, during the struggle of Antiochus Epiphany. So Daniel didn't literally write these prophecies while in captivity in Babylon. Because how could he have known all of this? Right? There's no way. And by the way, there's also no future context to Daniel's 70th week because it's all been fulfilled, either at Antiochus Epiphanes or some will say it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Uh, but surely there's no literal fulfillment. I mean, when Paul was writing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that couldn't surely come to pass. You know, that was, that was, that was something that was going to happen with, uh, you know, Titus in 70 AD. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of perversion of the scripture. And I, I say, I, I put all those quotes in there just so you know a lot of historical publications in, in uh, the church age are messed up like that. They don't really believe the word of God is true. They don't really hold fast to the faithful word. They don't have a literal view of scripture. They don't believe that Daniel, what the Bible clearly teaches was Daniel was in captivity. He received these visions. God recorded it, right? They don't really believe that. They, and, they, and they actually record it for you. So I, can, I just put a few examples there. You can read it yourself and see what they believe about the word of God. And these are the people stewarded with your church history class in college? Are you kidding me? Why are you quoting these fellows? Um, so what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is what we're going to have here in, the, in this course. So uh, for time's sake, I'm going to leave off these quotes and beating up on these guys. Uh, but you guys, you get the point. And you can read those for your own edification. That is not what we believe. I will just remind you what I'm giving you there in those quotes are examples of of the uh, ridiculous nature of people who don't believe the word of God. And, uh, and so you can read that and have that for your own. You can do what you want with it. Use the toilet paper. I don't care. All right. So um, let me get past that. So let me, I'm going to, I got five minutes left and I can run through a quick outline of church history. Where are we really going? So when we talk about church history, what in the world? How are we going to figure that out? Well, there's seven churches of Asia Minor that represent seven periods of church history over the past couple centuries. Um, and so, not the past couple centuries, the past couple uh, millennia, the 2,000 years. So over, other than, 30, uh, other than 33 AD dates uh, are approximate. So I don't have, church history doesn't always end, you know, like there isn't a stopwatch. Boom! Philadelphia, or Philadelphian age is over, uh, and now the Odyssey has happened. Although that one's pretty easy to lock down. A lot of times, depending on what you want to use as the benchmark, a lot of times people use the Laodicean church starts with the advent of the uh, Revised Standard Version Bible. Maybe that's the case, whatever. 
Uh, some of them are a lot, little bit, you know, when did that church age end? When did it, so they're approximate dates. Uh, it's a movement through history. Ages don't always end and start, you know, right on time. Uh, like the rapture is an event, right? So there's, difference, there's a difference between events and ages. All right, so just, just quickly in the time we have, let me run you through the church ages here, and you can fill in these blanks. The first church age that we'll see, and we'll study these in depth, so this is just an overview for the introduction, is Ephesus. So we, we need a framework to see church history. What is it? Well, I'm glad you asked. It is what God's given us in Revelation chapter 2 through 3. The first church is Ephesus. And if we had more time, I'd go back and read that. Uh, but for time's sake, I'm just going to give you the fill in the blanks, and we'll come back later and get the details. But the name means fully purposed, and it represents a time period from uh, the, the uh, advent of the church in Acts 2 through ab- approximately 200 A.D., uh, the church that knew what God wanted them to do, the apostles and their uh, converts fuf- uh, fulfilled the Great Commission in that age, and we'll look at that. Smyrna is the second church age from approximately 200 A.D. to 325, so that would be, uh, so you got in the, the, the first 10 Roman persecutions in the first century, or in the first church age, uh, bitterness and death follows in Revelation 2 and 8, that's the name of Smyrna, heavily persecuted church. Pagan Rome persecutes uh, try and tries to stamp out Christianity. And, of course, the advent of um, Constantine. Huh? Oh, you need that? Thank you. All right, thank you. So uh, Smyrna, you guys got that info. So Pagan Rome tries to, pers- to uh, stomp out uh, Christianity. And then when we get to about 325 to 500 A.D., you see a shift. And uh, guess what? The, the, the pagan Rome marries uh, Christianity, so to speak. And the name means, actually, Pergamos means much marriage. There's more to it than that. Uh, the, the, really, the Babylonian priesthood uh, came through um, uh, Pergamos. The city of Pergamos ends up in, in Regia, in Rome, Italy, and which there was, I don't think it was called Italy at the time, but in the Roman Empire, in the city of Rome. And, and then in 325, guess what? Magically, the pagan priesthood of, of Babylon, which came through Pergamos, the, the priesthood came through Pergamum in the first century, or actually first century B.C., uh, and then was relocated uh, to Rome magically in, in, uh, under Constantine, becomes now the college. By the way, the, pont- the pontiff, the cardinals, all of that was in place under pagan Roman religion. It just got converted over, boom, and now it is the Holy Roman Empire, just like that, overnight. And so uh, that's what happens in 325 A.D., uh, that was long, long after Peter, by the way, uh, and there was no such thing as Peter being the first pope. That's, that's fantasy. Um, and so the church that married into the world and settled down with it, Constantine's Edict of Toleration, uh, it basically loving the church. Uh, there's no evidence that Constantine was even saved, uh, but he started the church. So how about that? And that, by the way, not only did it marry, it married the church to the state. And from that point forward, and that's how you get the promises of Israel brought in. Because, well, hey, you know, that's what, that's, Israel had the kingdom, so now we got the kingdom. We got the keys of the kingdom, don't we? Right? So you can see the logic. We'll get into all that as we go. I don't want to get too far afoot. But all of these things work themselves out through church history and, the, and through the names even that God has given us in these churches and what they mean. So the church was married to the world and it settled down with it under this edict of toleration, and, uh, which you would think that's a good thing. Uh, and it was if you wanted to keep your head on your shoulders. Uh, but on the other hand, it was a doctrinal uh, nightmare. And so the next church we see is Thyatira. <clears throat> that ni- name means the odor of affliction. 
And uh, that spans from about 500 to 1,000 A.D. Uh, the church which bore God's judgment, uh, the Black Death came, and the depths of the Dark Ages. Uh, it was a terribly difficult time for Bible believers in Thyatira. We'll look at that age. And not a lot's recorded there. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. Uh, it, was, it was dark spiritually as well. Um, and then Sardis, uh, 1,000 to 1,500, that means the red ones. The church is of incredibly bloody persecutions. You also have the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisitions, and Bloody Mary. Uh, the Inquisitions, by the way, are, last until the 1800s. Um, and, so, and so, just FYI. Uh, and they're still on the books of the Roman Catholic Church. I'll get into that when we get there. Um, <clears throat> but you had uh, a lot of death and destruction during that, that church age, uh, Bible believers. And then the next church is Sardis. And we'll get, when we get to Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6, and that represents, uh, or I already covered Sardis, Philadelphia, I'm sorry. Uh, Philadelphia uh, is the next one from Revelation 3, 7 through, 7, 7 through 13. That represents the time of the Reformation from about 1500. Of course, Gutenberg invent, invented the printing press. And voila, the word of God starts expanding in great enlightenment. Even the world, right? They call it the, the Renaissance period. Uh, we call it, that's when the world awoke, right? Because the light of God's word, the word was being produced. And by the way, the church wanted to stop it. The church being Rome wanted to stop that. And uh, that, that name means brotherly love. Um, and, uh, and so the church of the open door in world missions uh, came from that. The gospel went all over the world. Uh, and English, of course, ends up becoming English at the beginning. Just think about that. At the beginning of the Philadelphian church age, the, the English language in Great Britain wasn't much. It was just a small island country. And by the end of that age, they were the global empire. It consolidated the world, the economy, and the language. Amazing. And then, of course, there was the advent of the United States of America as well. So Laodicea also is the last one, uh, which you hear me mention all the time, because um, uh, that's where we live today. That's about 1900 A.D. or 1881. depends on where you mark it and how dogmatic you are about that. Again, I, I use approximate dates. No, no reason to get super dogmatic about these. Uh, and then... And to the catching away of the church or what's called the rapture. Um, <clears throat> so that name means rights of the people. Oh, amen, amen. That's, that's where we live. We've got to have our rights. Uh, the church of the closed door, <laughs> not the open door. Philadelphia is a church of an open door. The church of Laodicea has got the closed door. Jesus is knocking. He can't even get in his own church. Um, it's rich. yet apostate. It thinks it's rich, but it's really wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So... Um, that's as far as we're going to get tonight. And uh, did I give you more notes than that? That's where we stopped. Okay, right. That makes sense. So I actually got through what I was supposed to. Hallelujah to you. Praise God. I'm excited about that. <clears throat> yeah, even with my little side notes. All right, so, um, so let me pause here. I know we're just a little over time, but are there any just burning questions or confusion? Yes, ma'am. Christendom is a phrase that's used to talk uh, about Christianity in the most generic sense. So... Um, all of Christendom is a, is a phrase that would lump uh, Bible believers. The reason I point it out is people will look at church history and, and they will say uh, what was going on uh, with Waldo of France was the same as what was going on in Rome. It's all of Christendom. Well, that's not accurate at all. And so the view that, that everyone that was a, is a Christian is under the Pope in Rome is also false. Yeah, it's a statement that there's people today that would call would even view us as part of Christendom, 
which in a sense is probably true in the most generic sense, but we understand uh, that we are dramatically different from Rome, right, and works-based salvation. So there's no distinctions. It's just if you have the name of Christ, you're a Christian. So a Hindu, for instance, or a Muslim in re- to this day, like I've witnessed in London and in, in India, a lot of times when they talk about to me, they have no understanding or distinctions between what we believe and who we are from Rome to this day. So I stood on, they, they would see us as Christian. You know, we're a Christian. That means I believe in the Pope. Well, I don't. So I stood for an hour on the streets of London talking to a fellow one time, a Muslim guy, and he, everything I, I kept agreeing. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't believe in the Pope. I don't believe. I was just running right through. I, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And he was just like, what kind of Christian are you? Oh, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And there is a difference, let me tell you. So that opened a door for me to talk about there's different. He didn't know that. He just thought every, and he thought I was underneath the authority of the Pope. And so that was like blew his mind. But they just see everything as Christendom. Who's that? In India, yeah, you're right. Yeah, in India it's that way. And you, and you do, we do. I, I will tell you, as much as I'm saying, I live in America so I can say what I want. But in India, we partner with Rome. How crazy is that? So if we're going to go last year before COVID, if we're going to go visit somebody in a persecuted state, which we were, we couldn't go anymore because they were being killed, literally. So we go to the, the, the monastery, will let us house them, and they won't persecute Rome like they will us. So as long as they let us go and have the guys come in, we'll meet. And uh, it's different when you're under persecution, too, I will tell you. That's another thing you've got to appreciate about church history. When everyone's trying to kill you because you're a Christian, if the Muslims re- invade the United States and want to kill everyone under the name of Christ and don't make distinctions between Baptists and Catholics, all of a sudden Baptists and Catholics become a lot more friendly. <laughs> so I've seen that happen in the, in, as well. So there's also reasons uh, that are practical in nature. So, um, you know, I don't believe in the theology of Rome, but I tell you, uh, you know, there's certain circumstances where I'd rather be next to that Roman Catholic when the Muslims are coming than not, because at least he's going to pick up a sword, you know. So uh, you just got to do what you got to do. So uh, I'm kind of convoluting things, but it, those are the confusing things that make church history a little difficult, and that's why we got to sort through those things and understand. Uh, but once, uh, say, Bible believers, uh, uh, whatever their name was, are, are targeted as heretics, it's on, and there's not very much protection. And so... But, it w- but uh, I'll get to that later. There's so much I want to say, but I'll just hold my fire. So good question. Hope that helps. Any other questions? <clears throat> All right. I know you got to go. So let's have a word of prayer. And uh, if you got any questions, too, you can shoot an email to me, bhedges at hbfcast.org, or contact at hbfcast.org. I'll get either one of those, and I will be happy to entertain any questions or clarify anything that has been said. Uh, I'm going through a lot of information. It's easy to misunderstand. It's also very possible I misstate something. So I just gotta, I'll be happy to clear up anything that needs to be cleared up or clarify anything that needs to be clarified. All right, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father.